transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Welcome to Joshua Tree, last exit before hell, especially in August. August is a time of month you never hear any visitors say, you know, I really want to move to the desert. This is the time of year when tourists die when they come to Joshua Tree. This is the time of year when every year there's always a couple of people that never make it back. And then you see posters with their pictures all over town. And then eventually, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, sometimes a couple of years, the remains are found. But Let's talk about something more cheerful. Something that sitting around a fire at a barbecue outside, times when people's guard is down a little bit, that's when people will start talking about the strange experiences that they have had in the high desert. Now, not strange experiences that are banal, not you know, you lost your dog or somebody dumped some weird garbage in front of your cabin, that kind of thing. Instead, what we're talking about are wonders in the sky, cryptids, strange noises, the Spanish lady on old Route 66. You get a couple of beers in people, and they start to admit that maybe they've had experiences like that. Maybe they've seen something strange. If not them, maybe a good friend, an ex-wife, an old neighbor, an old grandpa who died in Phoenix years ago. Now, I collect these stories from my work. I try to draw them out of even the most proper people, because anybody who spent much time in the high desert eventually has some sort of experience with the anomalous. I'll give you a famous example. Elvis Presley was living in Palm Springs. He was doing a residency in Las Vegas. He took what is known as the back way to Vegas, up the grade, 62, through Mojave Preserve, and into town. Somewhere east of Joshua Tree, he sees something. His driver, his hairdresser, stops the car. He jumps out. Elvis Presley runs out into the desert and gets right under what he sees, which is some sort of light formation hovering in place over the desert. He gets under that thing and starts screaming to his hairdresser in the car. It's Joseph Stalin's face. Now the hairdresser thought Elvis had once again just about lost it, but he could see that there was something out there. Apparently, from Elvis Presley's perspective, it looked like a big, terrifying face with heavy brows and that mustache. Graham Parsons, Keith Richards, all kinds of rock stars, artists, poets, minor movie characters, they've all come out to the desert and seen weird things. Graham Parsons and Keith Richards, the legend goes, 
used to drag a barber chair up on top of Cap Rock and sit up there and watch the UFOs. Or the, the passing planes descending into LAX, who knows? But sometimes people say, well, what about you? You collect all these stories. You ever seen anything like this? Well, I've seen a few. I've seen a few that stick with me. And I've talked about the most impressive in terms of meeting a, a kind of late-night desert radio standard of something very large and very strange and unexplained in the sky. And that was out the 395, north of Ridgecrest, going up to the eastern Sierra. But right here, right here in Joshua Tree, right here when it was just like this, oppressively hot, humid, people dropping dead like flies. I was coming back from Palm Springs around 10 o'clock at night. I come up Highway 62 up the grade. Now they were putting the sewer system in on Yucca Trail, if you know the shortcut to Joshua Tree, so I couldn't use that. I stayed on 62 to La Contenta. At La Contenta, I turned left on the Alta Loma. As I turn left, I see something hanging in the sky. Now, it's not a star or a planet that I'm aware of, but I figure I'll keep an eye on it. I get up to my place, park in the driveway, it's still there. I bring my stuff inside. I happen to have a house full of people at the time. So I got everybody outside. I'm like, come out, come out and see this thing. What do you think? I got my phone. I turned on my uh, astronomy app, you know, Starwalk. And all it up. No, it's not planet. It's not star. It was moving a little bit, but mostly kind of staying in place. Kind of blue and white, yellow lights. About the size of Jupiter, as it looks right now, hanging in the eastern sky. It was August 2017. So everybody comes out, oh, I don't know what that is. Let's get the bird binoculars, passing around the bird binoculars. I don't know. Oh, whoa, whoa. It looks square. So we got a shape, square. I couldn't see a shape that was square. But some people with better eyes than I have, through the binoculars, saw something like a square with blobs of white inside of it. So we all kind of agree that it is unidentified at the very least. At that moment, the thing accelerates from where it was and goes straight up into the sky, miles high, disappears in a little point of light. It was like a fireworks show, and everybody's going, oh. responsible citizen. I went in that night, I looked on the social media, and tried to see if anybody else saw anything like it, didn't see any reports. But the next day, listening to the radio, the local news, I hear that two young tourists have disappeared. And they disappeared by the looks of it, 
directly under where this light was. From my house at the time, you could look out over section six, section five, into the park by the west entrance and over to an area called the Maze Loop Trail. Well, that's where this young couple, at least a couple of people, a guy and a girl were. They rented an Airbnb. They never checked out. The host came and found that they left their stuff there. The park rangers found the car abandoned in the parking lot. But everybody went looking. You know what it's like in August, a monsoon season, when somebody goes missing. Helicopters, a search and rescue squad comes out. It was so hot that the search and rescue dogs had to be rescued. They had to helicopter them out. Months went by. And it wasn't until October when the search team made another round and found some clues and followed those clues. And there they found the remains of the couple. Who it turns out were not a couple. They had been together age 20 and 21, I believe, from Orange County in Long Beach. But she was going to college and he was a security guard and she put him in the friend zone. And he brought her out to Joshua Tree for her birthday, just friends. Well, the way they found them was her remains were behind a tree in a little canyon. His remains were on top of She had a bullet in her head. He had a bullet in his head. He brought a loaded handgun on a day hike. Killed them both. I don't know what the correlation is between the weird light in the sky right over that point where they were found on the night they disappeared. But I do know that Americans especially see anything in the sky and they've all seen too many Star Trek episodes or something because they think space aliens. But long before we made up that idea, wonders in the sky were signs. They pointed things out to us. And if we knew how to read them, if we knew how to make sense of them, then maybe... We wanted to look for three months for those people. Maybe we would have sent somebody right over. Maybe we would have like an auger who works for the National Park Service. And we got a light over there. Go check and see if there's any missing people. So next time you're out under a desert night sky, look up there and see what you can find. And if you have something that seems to be pointing to a location, maybe go take a look. Welcome to Desert Oracle Radio. I'm your host, Ken Lane, and as I mentioned on last week's program, 
I've been listening to these audio books of the classic UFO paranormal books by John A. Keel. His best known book being The Mothman Prophecies and the ones I mentioned last week, Operation Trojan Horse and The Eighth Tower, which is actually made of cast-offs from The Mothman Prophecies. And these books offer a very interesting approach to the whole UFO paraphysical issue. It's not like your ancient aliens on TV where they're trying to throw everything into some wild theory about aliens and space helmets visiting Moses or whatever. <laughs> but they're they're illuminating. And in fact, Keel talks a lot about illumination as both a uh, religious and philosophical goal that is worth working for. The reader, the narrator, the performer on these books, and a new one I've since started, is Michael Hacker, uh, actor and audiobook narrator. And we got him on the phone from Minnesota. Michael Hacker, welcome to Desert Oracle Radio. Thank you, Ken. Nice to be here. You were mentioning before we went on the air here that when you're doing audiobooks, you have a specific subject you like to stay within. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, what attracted me to audiobooks originally was um, it was an outlet for my acting, but I have since moved into an area that really fascinates me, and that is the paranormal, paranormal nonfiction. There are other genres of paranormal in audiobooks, but paranormal nonfiction, when I started, was really underrepresented, and I wanted to change that. You know, I've always had an interest in the paranormal. I grew up in Iowa, around the corner from Brad Steiger, who is another paranormal researcher. John Keel mentions him several times in his books. And I just always was fascinated by it. I was probably the only high school student in the state of Iowa reading Rosicrucian tracts back in the day. <laughs> so it that, goes way back. That's kind of a marker for the rest of your life, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Did I was he... interested in developing ESP. Oh. But I was fascinated by people like Yuri Geller and the great psychic uh, that uh, Brad Steiger was huge friends with and I'm going to space on her name she's definitely gone from the world at this point but um, I remember talking to Brad's wife about the tarot and she said well most tarot readers are psychic and I'd never heard anything like that before I thought that was unique that people believed it and so it really made me think again about the paranormal and what's it what's at its core. And John Keel really gets to that bullseye in his writing. Now John Keel, before his work with UFOs and monsters, which he was happy to bridge 
the mm -hmm. the gap between and saying there was no gap between them. He started cool. off as a amateur stage magician and also thought that he had he was developing psychic powers in his youth. Right. He in the book you're currently reading, uh, Flying Saucer, he he gives his personal recollection on his um, being struck by cosmic consciousness. And it's an interesting moment in his development. He really, it, it really changed his life. And he felt for the better because he, he, he gained a, a consciousness that expanded beyond his own experience and touched on things that were cosmic, larger than him. And that's something that I think a lot of people have had in the past. He's really interested in talking to his witnesses about that uh, experience that they've had and he cites where people who have had this experience have had it in direct relationship to extraterrestrial or ultra terrestrial visitation sighting ufos being in the presence of what he calls big hairy monsters bhm <laughs> and and how they have changed as individuals and their philosophies have changed. A lot of them will abandon their jobs and families and maybe even start alternate religious groups or cults based on their experience. He had kind of a, a scale of impact where some people seem to lose it completely and not be able to integrate their experience with their daily life. And then there was the other side, and these were people who often found themselves in creative fields, although not necessarily. It might be in environmental nonprofits or in clergy or whatever it may be, but were able to integrate this wider view that comes from this illumination experience into their daily lives mm -hmm. and not wreck everything. Right. Well, I think it's it's rather uh, a, a sense of communication on that level where they are listening, but they are also giving. They are giving back. They are motivated on a mission, so to speak, to help others, to save the planet, to, um, you know, make the world a better place. And yet it's a double-edged sword as John Keel mentions people can can become uh, destroyed by it and he, he does warn that it's dangerous uh, and so does uh, so do, do other books that I've read about this the experience a few weeks ago on this show we were talking about the experience that 62 school children in Rua, Zimbabwe had in 1994 mm -hmm. at the Ariel School. And I know it well. Yeah, mm -hmm. a fantastic event. And mm -hmm. John Mack, the Harvard head of the psychiatry school. Mm -hmm. Oops. What happened here? I'm on with you. Okay, sorry. I had a I had a ghost track suddenly come up in my ears. Well, you know, we're talking about UFOs and paranormal. That's bound to happen. It's bound to happen. We're going to get the clicks. <laughs> we're going to get the weird laughter, the mechanical yeah. laughter. And if we start hearing a series of numbers, then we're in big trouble. Yes. Then yes. we can expect a visit from the men in black. 
I'm always on the lookout for them. <laughs> the, yeah. the black sedan and the, the mm-hmm. men in the, the strangely new clothing and that whole That's scene. Right. The we, sing-song voice. The voice, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You're a Philip K. Dick reader, and yeah. you had brought up Valis, the uh, vast artificial living intelligence system that plays a role in especially the famous Valis trilogy, but it seems to mm-hmm. have a part in a lot of Philip K. Dick books. The Keel version of this is what he calls the super spectrum. Having kind of gotten inside of Keel's head and reading these books, what do you make of the super spectrum, and how how do you describe it? And is it something that you consider uh, that fits into your worldview, or? Well, it, it does. My understanding from reading Keel's work is that his concept of the super spectrum is slightly different than what he calls the eight tower. He definitely. I mean, his description of the eight tower is very similar to Vallis. Uh, it's all it's the same thing. Both of them were were clued into a vast invisible intelligence that was affecting human life on this planet. The super spectrum is where it kind of exists. It is beyond ultraviolet, and he definitely considers energy to be part of the mystery, and that paraphysical entities descend from the super spectrum through the spectrum of light to the point where we can see them. Certain people have innate in their their genes, that their biology, the ability to see farther into the, into the light spectrum than others. And they are the people who normally can see these paraphysical apparitions. So here we have something that's not just extra sensory perception, but it's is multiple channels of extra sensory perception because you've got exactly. a psychic element and then a yeah. then a visual perception. And he uses the word that I've seen some other people like uh, Jacques Vallée use, which is percipient. Yes, the uh, the witness, the individual who can perceive these things. Uh, Not everyone can see them, he says. In fact, I have a personal anecdotal story from one of my co-workers at Mayo Clinic who said that she was with a family and one of the, the members of the family, who was a young girl, adolescent girl, had poltergeist experiences. When they were together, they were out enjoying a nice evening and they all saw UFOs. And that was the only time she ever saw a UFO. I think Keel would say that it was the proximity to that girl that allowed them to see it. That, that somehow she projected her ability to see into the super spectrum onto other people in her presence. This I is, that- is fascinating. And it's, it's the, mm-hmm. the kind of thing that if you have not... If you don't know people who have had this experience or if it hasn't been something that's happened in in your own life, it Mm -hmm. can sound a little nutty because we don't really have the terms to describe a kind of borrowed psychic ability. Right. 
it's one of those things that are um, that are mysterious and yet extremely plausible in my view uh, this can be effectively granted to other people or or one of the terms that Keel uses is hallucinosis the sense of contagious perception that's it's an incredible term yeah hallucinosis yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I started incorporating some of John Keel's stuff into our magazine, Desert Oracle, which is a magazine about desert folklore and history and the mm-hmm. natural environment, the flora and fauna, and also the monsters. Yeah. We have our Yucca Man, and uh, oh, oh yeah, we we got our, our we got our big. The, he's not well. Whether he he's a, big and hairy or not, he yeah. is. Uh, Always described as he, although families have been seen under Edwards Air Force Base over in the western Uh Mojave. Oh, yeah. Are they described as green men by any chance? No, these are are the the dark and smelly big ones. All right. Well, they stink. Yeah. They stink. They have Um, the... Steel talks about that, that they stink of, of sulfur sometimes. Which, you know, makes perfect sense if, like me, you grew up in a, you know, going to a Baptist church, they told you what the devil was going to smell like. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So it's all, it all might be part of the same myth pool, the same folklore. Keel talks about that in his famous uh, letter when he was resigning from UFO research back in the 70s, and he he said, uh, read the Bible, it's all in. I am, I'm not suggesting that I'm a religious person, uh, a religious nut, but I, I think that some of the folklore, some of the myths are shared. And Keel himself talks about frame of reference, how people perceive these paraphysical entities and paraphysical apparitions through their frame of reference so that in the 19th century you saw these flying airships out of Jules Verne before that you saw fairies and leprechauns and before that you saw demons and devils and before that going back to the Greeks they considered daemons or d-e-a-m-o-n's the cacodaemon and the agatha daemon which today uh, is still in popular culture when you see the the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other that's what the greeks were talking about right so, and then these yeah. things were ended up becoming part of supposedly christian culture because christian culture <laughs> subsumed classical <laughs> culture and it exactly. all goes in this circle and <laughs> i think there's a unified whole to it i really do uh, human experience is shared and again it's the frame of reference so much of early Christian belief was based on that that sense of logic, and they they you know famously were trying to count the number of angels on the head of a pin, right. and, that kind of thing. <laughs> and the levels of hell and all of that. Uh huh. Exactly. It all had to be structured. And there and had yeah that, there had to be a, a theology that had eight hundred pages mm-hmm. written about it. It. Right. Could not just right. be you're walking in the wilderness and you encounter some sort mm-hmm. of entity of light and and you right. are enriched by it. That was suspect. Yeah. And based on <laughs> on Western culture, everything is rational.
from Amboy to Zizix and across the Great Mojave Wilderness, this has been Desert Oracle Radio. Thanks to our guest, Michael Hacker. Thanks to Red, Blue, Black, Silver for the tunes. And thanks to you for listening. And good night from the Voice of the Desert. <laughs>